Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is an interview that I did with my dad, Eric Roseland. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's an interview that I did in person. I think you'll enjoy the rapport between us. My dad has got a lot of interesting stories about going to Vietnam, about growing up as an American kid in post-war Germany. He talks about and has some interesting insights about my family's history with NASA, with the American Space Agency. So I enjoyed chatting with him. I think you'll enjoy listening to it. But I have to admit something to you. I did this interview with him nearly two years ago. And something held me back from releasing it. And it took me two years to figure out what was holding me back. So, as you'll hear in the uh, addendum uh, comments, uh, the follow-up emails that my dad sent me for this interview, which I'll uh, read out some and summarize here, his Christian faith is central to his life. And about my dad, he has worked more often than not for the American government, either working directly for the state or for military contractors. Herein lies my hesitation in releasing the interview. So I'm also a Christian and Unlike my dad, I'm a person of a libertarian bent. I wouldn't say that I agree with or even support the uh, libertarian party or that I uh, agree with every libertarian idea, but if I kind of have to put myself in an ideological, political kind of category, that would be it. Because I hate the U.S. government. It's probably the only thing I truly hate. I hate it for its history of perpetuating tremendous evil and suffering in the world. I hate it for the evil it continues to do. I hate it for the unending betrayals of the American people. I hate it for the insane money printing it does, which robs the decent American people of their savings. That's why I urge almost everyone that I talk to to uh, buy gold, buy crypto. I hate it for the regulating agency, the regulating quote-unquote health agencies that do nothing but serve Big Pharma and harm the collective health of the nation. 
if you look into those health agencies, if you watch the documentaries about uh, FDA, CDC, they are just syphilitic whores on their knees before the big pharmaceutical corporations. I hate the government for its warmongering, for the bloody path it has cut through the world, destroying countries for as long as I can remember, for my the width of my life, as long as I was aware of things going on in the world, the U.S. government was waging ridiculous, pointless wars. I hate it for making the country of my birth a place I no longer want to live in. It would make me a second-hand citizen in America because I've stewarded very well the, the immune system God gave me, and I don't need a COVID vaccine. I hate it for the cult of fake liberal morality that it's built as a moat around it, around this cathedral of corruption. And I hate it because it hates me for being a straight white male. Anybody remotely observant of American politics and world events or anyone philosophically rigorous will understand my reasons for contempt for my government. I see it as an evil factory. I see it as the heart of what I and many other people call the beast system. Which brings us to my father's faith, to my parents' faith. One thing my parents taught me from a pretty young age is that Satan runs this planet and has entrenched a beast system to mire mankind in our violent basal instincts and that's why the earth is such an evil place. Something my parents uh, imbued to me at a young age was that, yes, the world is an evil place, but it's not because of any particular uh, group of people. It's not because of any particular race of people or any particular um, ethnicity of people that, it's, that are making it such an evil place. It's because it's a place ran by the devil. And if you do a little research, it's not hard to see the beast system in action. The uh, U.S. government, other uh, globalist, neoliberal kind of governments, uh, big multinational corporations, media, banking, and most, almost all of uh, societal institutions, they collude together to impose suffering and destitution on people, on Americans. Something that became exceedingly clear in 
2020 and is just becoming more clear. So I've read the New Testament of the Bible. Some of the books in there I've read multiple times. And what I took away from the New Testament of the Bible, which is what us Christians look most towards for guidance, what I took away from it is that Christianity is fundamentally voluntarist. You make the choice to accept the gift of salvation. It's a consensual, nonviolent religion. It's really, I think, the most libertarian religion. Or perhaps you could say that libertarianism or classical liberalism is the most Christian, political, ideological worldview. The world-rocking philosophical innovation of Christ was the introduction of universalist morality. The moral systems before Christ, and many of the moral systems since Christ, and especially some of the very stylish moral systems of modernity of the current year, are just manifestations of evolutionarily adaptive tribal in-group, out-group preferences. The underlying Christian values of free agency and the sacred value of every human being are, I contend, why classical liberalism and the civilization that made it to the moon and back sprung out of Christendom of Europe in the first place. And this brings us to the contradiction that held me back from releasing this interview for two years. My father has always been a vocal Christian, a conspicuous Christian. He's led Bible studies, he's taught in church, he's led other people to Christ. And I just find hypocrisy in being a conspicuous Christian while having a career, spending a significant portion of your life working to, to one extent or another for the U.S. government. To me, an obvious force of evil. To me, that's serving to masters. For comparison, my passion and career for nearly a decade now have been being a professional biohacker, researching, writing, and putting out over 400 podcasts now about empowering health. Imagine if while talking so much about health, I had a job for Monsanto, Coca-Cola, or Philip Morris, the cigarette company. I'd be a tremendous hypocrite for working for an organization that so starkly opposed the values I trumpeted. And when confronted about this, if my only response was, well, 
It's only a job, and they pay me a lot. The benefits are great, lots of vacation time, so what am I supposed to do? If that was my response, it would be clear that my values didn't connect with what I actually did in life. Nobody would take seriously what I said about the health stuff. And that's sort of how I feel when my dad talks about his faith. And he um, he does a good job of staying in touch with me. And he has a concern for my soul. He's interested in connecting with me on a, on a faith level. Now, in his defense, in his formative years as an adult, there were only like 10 channels on TV. There weren't a bunch of great libertarian-esque podcasts and YouTube channels where you could learn about philosophically robust freedom, where you could learn about the brilliant future that beckons when humanity finally throws off the shackles of centralized authoritarian government. You can think about the technology that populates your life. Your smartphone is probably not more than two years old. Your computer is maybe five years old, maybe 10 years old at the most. In every other area, of, in most areas of life, especially in the areas of life where we are thriving, where we have good things going on, we're usually looking at recent, new technology, new innovation is what's largely improving the world, lifting people out of suffering and destitution. Yet, our government, the way that we structure and organize society, is an ancient, ancient institution. It is the institution that is most resistant to any type of innovation. And back then, uh, when he was growing up, when he was forming his worldview, they didn't really have alternative media that exposed the corruption and evils of government. They had a couple of main news networks that basically just parroted, repeated back whatever the uh, CIA talking points were on how things were going in the world. As he mentions in the interview, as a young man, he was essentially given a plata o ploma, silver or lead deal from the U.S. government. Either you go to Vietnam or you go to jail. And that imposition would define his relationship to government for the rest of his life, it would seem. And he worked very hard in those statist jobs of his to provide a pretty decent life for us. And he was not like the guy in the Pentagon in charge of uh, bombing wedding parties. He was a minor cog in the machinery of state. And if he knew that I'd grow up to be such a convicted anti 
statist, maybe he would have made some different career decisions. I love my dad, and having recently rediscovered my faith as a Christian, I wish that I could connect with him more as a, as a Christian. But I just have trouble taking that part of him seriously because of his career. I can't remember him uh, ever being very critical of the government. He seems to be pretty okay with almost everything the government does. So, and perhaps you all will find this, uh, in, in one way this is not so interesting because, of course, family members are going to have political, ideological differences. That's perfectly natural. But I suppose the takeaway from this is do your best to live consistently, consistently with the values you espouse. Let your career be a manifestation of your values, not an exception to them. And know that any hypocrisy between your values and the way that you live your life, that will become a wedge between you and those you care most for, especially your children who will have an increasingly keen sense for detecting that hypocrisy as they grow up. I'm sure that one day when I have kids and they grow up, I'm sure that they will point out the my, my own hypocrisy. And that will be something that I'll have to struggle with on my own. And this... Uh, this uh, gap in worldview that I have with uh, with my father, I'm. It makes me thankful, really, that I don't have that gap with my wife, with the person that I spend more time with than anyone else. My wife and I are about ninety percent on the same page. Uh, ideologically, philosophically, politically, and that really does make life a whole lot easier when the person that you're really close to, that you care the most for, when you agree on most things. I hear all of these, uh, all these really sad stories, especially now since the world has has changed so much because of COVID about the ideological chasm that is that is uh, formed between a lot of couples because one person in the couple will be kind of like a COVID truther who's uh, who's who's about you know uh, freedom and health freedom and the biohacking stuff and then the other person in the couple will be a covid mainstreamer who's uh, pro vaccine pro masks pro lockdowns and it can be a real source of contention and disconnect between these couples i i think that's really sad it, uh, i hear stories about people even getting divorced over it and 
that is that is truly sad. And I, again, have tremendous contempt for the government and the mainstream media with its propaganda that has that has caused that disconnect between people that should be loving each other. But more than anything, again, I just have gratefulness for the relationship that I have. And I'm thankful that I seduced my wife properly from the very inception of our relationship. I practiced all of the proper seduction things that a man should do if he wants to win a woman, body, mind, heart, spirit. And as a result, I have influence. I have the influence that I deserve. I have uh, influence over her, over the way that she looks at the world that is uh, that is proper, that is a way that I can make sure that on the ship together that we have, that it's been captained in the right direction and that it has her full support. It, it really is a great sense of some much needed tranquility and strength that I have in my life. So I guess that would be kind of the takeaways from the uh, disagreement, um, perhaps it's a bit of an abstract disagreement that I have with my father, is that try to live consistently with the values you, you espouse, especially in your career. And then if you're a single guy, if you're a, a married guy, I would, boy, urge you to read my book, Don't Stick Your Dick in a Blender, because in that book I detail all how to properly seduce a woman so that you can influence her in a healthy, proper way so that you two are on the same page when it comes to the important things in life. So, being trying to be a good journalist, I emailed my dad about this. I said, Dad, this is what I'm going to say. Let me give you a chance to respond. So I asked him, how do you justify your Christian faith and working for the government, which is fundamentally a force of violence and theft? Is this something you've ever thought about? Most philosophers, uh, moral philosophers, agree that good people willingly working in organizations that do evil share a degree of culpability in that evil. And you can also see that in, uh, you can also see that in law. I think most famously in the Nuremberg trials. And I asked my dad, have you asked God for forgiveness for your uh, involvement in the government. And he, to his credit, he responded to me. He wasn't, he didn't call me uh, any names. He didn't call me a crazy conspiracy theorist because I disagree with him. He, he is a good listener and he he took my um uh, I think he did his best to take my my objections and my arguments to 
heart. And here's what he had to say. Unfortunately, your questions come across as judge, jury, and executioner for asking the condemned how they plead. Do they have any last words? And he said, well, no one and not me would respond to such accusations. Um, These are not even questions, really. They reveal your existing biases, not uh, what you want to discover from another person. So, sure, maybe I pose that in a bit of a loaded way. I am a libertarian, so I see the government as a force of violence and theft. He doesn't see it that way. But he goes on to try to address my objection, my uh, my, my views here on statism versus Christianity. He writes, I'll give you my understanding of government. It derives from the seminal passage in Romans 13. And he quotes from it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Question. Uh, Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's from the book of Romans. My dad also writes some observations on what was said above. He summarizes, government is instituted by God in order to maintain uh, peace and uh, order and peace. Government suppresses crime and anarchy with punishment. Government taxes people to pay for its services. We need to do what is good and become engaged citizens. Government in and of itself is not evil. But, he writes, some government policies can be evil, such as, for one example, when it tries to suppress religion. A historical example, Acts 4.19, 
But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. You must judge, for we cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. For their conscientious objections, they were tortured, which is a little change today across the world. Another historical example is when Moses led his enslaved people out of Egypt against the Pharaoh's demands that they not leave and remain as slaves. So, and he goes on, I'll summarize a few other things he writes. He says, but I am not against government itself. I'm proud of my service in the U.S. Navy, uh, as I think he probably should be. Our U.S. government is imperfect and messy, but I agree with Winston Churchill, who said democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. So, yeah, my dad uh, finds, my, my dad seems to believe that uh, Christians should submit to government, and that is uh, what it seems to say there in Romans. However, my contention, and the way that a lot of Christians feel, is that we should submit to a just government. We should submit to a government that does a decent job of exhibiting Christian morals. And you would have a really hard time convincing really anyone, convincing really anyone on the political spectrum who does not receive a paycheck from the government, from the U.S. government, that it is a just one. Americans have, uh, I don't think, ever been angrier at their government because of the blatant, obvious injustices. So I, I might wonder if my dad is saying that um, as Christians we're commanded to submit to any government, like, really, I can think of some pretty awful governments throughout history. I can think of some pretty awful governments that exist now. So, should Christians submit to even an awful, anti-Christian, genocidal kind of government? I would think not. In fact, for those of us who are Christians, we only have this faith because of brave and heroic early Christian saints that defied the Roman Empire and they spread the faith and they often endured torture and paid the ultimate cost for them. I think my father would be thankful that those people defied an unjust government. So, it's still something I'm trying to figure out. Is there a way that you can be a consistent, good Christian and also work for a government that does a lot of evil out there in the world? I don't know. It, that seems like such a 
contradiction to me. But I'm thankful that my dad is a good enough listener, um, that he is a compassionate enough person, that he's uh, willing to engage me on this sort of question. So that's maybe, uh, for those of you who are Christians, that's maybe a thing to that's maybe a thing to think about if you engage your family in these type of questions. I hope that they are as uh, reasonable as my dad was. So with that preamble out of the way, let's dive into the interview. Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I am here with my father. Hey, Dad. Hey, Jonathan. Welcome back to Bulgaria. Glad to be here. Glad glad to see where you live. Glad to see your family. Glad to see your lovely wife. Yeah, it's something very special that you're that you're here, most certainly. So in this podcast, we kind of wanted to get some vignettes and talk a little bit about some of your experiences in life and then this is something, this MP3 file is something that I dare say will outlive you. A lot of things will outlive me. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, my children. <laughs> Go, ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and most certainly this book right yes. here that you wrote, was it 11 years ago? It was, <clears throat> it was a long time ago. It was before yesterday. I, I'll be very precise. <laughs> okay. So let's go back a bit further than that. Where were you born? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, May 19, 1952. It was a very good year. Mm -hmm. What was your first memory? My first memory going back then was of my mother's father, my my grandfather. He was, uh, we were watching Route 66 on a small black and white TV. And he had, uh, he would drink Werner's uh, soda. It's uh, ginger ale, but Werner's was what I remembered. And then another memory I have was I was at, I went to the bathroom. I was just a little kid here, and I was walking back down the hallway. And I just, being a nosy kid, I opened one door and I looked in, and there he was kneeling by the side of his bed praying. And I go, I just very carefully closed the door and went back and continued watching Route sixty six. So he was a religious man. I I don't I don't know anything more about him than that. Uh-huh. And he was... Uh, uh, that was a distinctive moment, though. He, he uh, uh, on our background, is a Norwegian and Hungarian. On my father's side is Norwegian, and, and on my mother's side is Hungarian. And so they were Hungarian heritage. Just actually from Hungary, just a few uh, countries over from here. Okay. What was something he taught you? My grandfather didn't teach me. Your father. Oh, my father. Uh, let's see, I'm trying not to say. Uh, Take your time. I remember 
when I was uh, getting out of high school and before I went to junior college taking classes is that he my he said, Eric, you need to get into computers. And to me, that was the most utterly boring thing he could ever say. And because at that time, I was a, uh, even though I was in high school, I was a newspaper photographer. Thank you very much. I was a uh, newspaper photographer for the Orlando Sentinel. And uh, I would chase ambulances and I would go down to the beach and take pictures of uh, young ladies in bikinis, and I was having a great life. And he brought you to Germany. Uh, yes, that's, that's leaping backward several years. My father was an engineer for uh, uh, Chrysler, and he was supporting the U.S. Army over in Germany during the Cold War. Uh, specifically, he was... The Marshall Plan, right? No. Okay. Uh, specifically, he was working on the Pershing missile. It was a, a solid-fueled uh, uh, ballistic missile. And it was during the Cold War. And when uh, Russia and Germany were... Uh, ho hostile, and he would go out on maneuvers with the uh, uh, with the U.S. Army, and they would set up these big missiles in the in the fields, and if and they were preparing for if they were attacked by Russia. Right. So, so that's that's how we got over to Germany. And you were quite young at that time. Was was there? What were some of the impressions of Germany? What were some of the cultural difference you noted, if, if any? Well, uh, I was only like seven or eight, but what I really liked was wearing lederhosen, which is uh, translated leather shorts. <laughs> and Very fashionable. I, yes, yeah, all, all, ch all young uh, German children wore lederhosen, and so you'd have a leather strap going up, and you'd have leather shorts. And for a German child, these were meant to last about three or four years. But being a Yankee, I would wear them out in a year. And uh, so that I like that, Lederhosen. I like German bratwurst. And my parents uh, bought from another uh, departing American couple a uh, accordion, a musical accordion. So I learned to play some accordion music. And, and I was only like, as I said, seven or eight. And so this accordion was about half my size. And whenever I used it and opened it, I would, uh, and closed it, I would pinch my chest because of the accordions. <laughs> and so I would go, oompa, oompa, ow, 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 oompa, oompa, ow, ow, ow. Yeah, that's not the correct technique. Uh, no, <laughs> but it was my only technique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was the destruction of the country evident to you? Uh, yes, we we stayed in a uh, apartment building right next to the Rhine River. And it was like a four-story apartment building. Uh, they were all apartments, but before the war, they were a like a single house with different floors. Which, which city was that? It was in the city of Mainz. Okay. And uh, 
And what I did, my mother said, Eric, never go upstairs to the top. And so what did I do? I went upstairs to the top. And, uh, uh, and I was, uh, a lot of the roof was still uh, gone and they'd have brick walls. And I was looking in the brick wall and stitched from left, bottom left to top right was a line of machine gun bullets, bullet holes in the wall. And, uh, and so I would go up and I'd put my finger in the machine gun bullet holes. That's something. You know, this building was actually destroyed. The roof of it apparently was actually destroyed in World War II also. Then we have something in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thankful that I got to avoid that episode of history. And I'm glad they put the roof back on. Yeah. Yeah. It looks pretty nice. Now... What was a book that you read as a young adult or in your youth that you think had a lot of influence on you? Uh, let me think. Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I read that book and I, I loved his adventures going down the river and he would go out. And so I remember one time I thought I would do what... Uh, what he did in his uh, adventures. And so we were living in Las Vegas uh, at the time. My father worked in uh, uh, for the Nuclear Energy Commission uh, out in the desert. And so we lived there and I had a friend down the street that I uh, met in, in, uh, uh, in school. And so I thought one night I got up at like two o'clock in the morning and I uh, carefully opened the back door, walked out, and I carefully walked down the street. And, and I thought, I'd do what Tom Sawyer did. Remember, he would go and, and get his buddies, and they'd go out and do things in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd go do that. So I went up to his, and then Tom Sawyer would throw a rock at the window. And, <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll throw a rock at the window. Except the window was at, uh, you know, at, at my chin height. <laughs> Don't have to throw it far. And, and, and so, so my friend, I forget his name, he came to the window and he was so tired. And he opened the window and says, what are you doing here? What do you want? I said, well, you want to go play? And he looked at me like I was foolish. He goes, no, go back to bed. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go back. I said, okay. And so I started walking back to our, to our house and right opposite our house, on the other side of the street, directly opposite, they were building a new house. And it was a stick frame, and they had plywood for the roof up. And so I thought, I'm going to climb up on the roof. Construction sites are always fun to oh, yeah. explore. So I climbed up on the roof, and I was uh, up there, and I climbed up, you know, up to the uh, top edge of the roof, and I was looking over at our house, pretending I was like an enemy soldier. And then what happened is that the floodlights around our house went on. So it went from total darkness to blinding white light. And my dad walked out the door that I snuck out of, and he was carrying a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> he thought somebody was trying to break and enter into the house. And so he walked around the house kind of like a guard walking around and and he went back in and then he did the most terrible thing. He locked the door. Of course. <laughs> and, and then I thought, what am I going to do? 
And uh, uh, so I, I was just, I stayed up there and I, I, I was getting kind of cold and I was shivering. And then after a little while, I, I climbed back down and I walked around behind our house and I went up to my, uh, my sister, Heidi, and I knocked on her window and, and, and she came, she, what are you doing? I said, I said, let me in the house, let me in the house. And so she let me in. And then the next morning at breakfast, you know, my dad and my mother and me and Heidi, who was the only sister then, uh, my dad said, did any of you kids see anybody out, hear anything last night? And we both looked at him and goes, no, dad, we didn't hear anything. <laughs> We're innocent. We're innocent. There you go. We had nothing to do with that. Yeah, there you go. So that's my that, that's my story. <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and your parents divorced around what time? Uh, I think when I was 17. Aha. Why do you think that happened? You know, I don't know all the reasons, and I don't want to speculate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Very private reasons. Anytime yeah. that sort of it was, thing happens. It was private for them, so but I don't want to speculate any. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And your dad had a, a an interesting career. He had a very eventful career. Yes, he worked uh, for NASA, and he worked as an electrical engineer during uh, the during the Mercury. Uh, when John Glenn went up in space uh, during the Gemini, which was then they had two astronauts in the capsule, and then throughout the Apollo era. And then, so he was involved in every one of those launches. And then the tail end of his career, he was involved in the beginning of the uh, uh, the shuttle shuttle flights. And did he take you to work very many times? No, no. Part of it was that it was a government installation, high security. But uh, after he retired, uh, we went and we took some tours of the uh, Kennedy Space Center. And uh, he actually uh, took me to the uh, firing room one, which was... Uh, you know, if you watch any of the movies like Apollo 13 or any of those uh, where they're doing the countdown, uh, that's that's where he uh, actually uh, was present uh, during those launches. And so he, he took took me there and uh, and then we actually drove around to some of the uh, older launch pads that they had. Uh, used during uh, Gemini and uh, Mercury. And he was kind of a workaholic. Uh, as was everyone during that era. Uh, you either, basically you were involved in, the, in one of the largest historic uh, endeavors that mankind had, uh, uh, was working on going to the moon, you know, Trying to put a man on the moon, so there was, was, was it was demanding. You know, there was one of my very favorite quotes from U.S. presidents is JFK when he was doing that speech and he was announcing the mission. I think in 1960, and he was saying, 
we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And that that's that's an amazing attitude of saying we're gonna we're gonna do the we're we're gonna do something just because it's hard. And no, not just because it's hard, uh, but the, the the historical background on that obviously was the Russians' uh, launch of Sputnik, which was a like a one foot wide uh, aluminum capsule that they they sh- successfully shot up in space and it would just it would just send out radio signals and really had nothing did nothing beyond that uh except that it had the effect of galvanizing uh the US government that we needed to beat the Russians into space and uh and they then Russians successfully launched Gurganin I believe I, I'm saying his name incorrectly, uh, but he was the first uh, human being into space. And so we were already behind the eight ball. And so Kennedy wanted to propose a project that would uh, help us leapfrog the Russians. And so going to the moon was the, you know, what came to mind. Mm-hmm. And it it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Now... Your dad wrote a Latin word at the end of his journals. Oh, et, et is finis. Yeah. Maybe um, that's two Latin words. Well, <laughs> it is. It, it was, uh, uh, or finis, uh, which means finished. And basically it was a uh, logbook. It was an engineering logbook that he had. And it covered several months and to read it was incredibly boring like you'd say on a certain page they'd have the time and date and they'd say locks test finished uh voltage uh problem you know it didn't make for very interesting reading but what was interesting was that uh from time to time there were little comments about uh, when they they would have shifts, you these engineers would be working shifts, and so when one engineer, uh, for example, my dad finished a shift, he would make certain comments, and then the next engineer on the next shift would pick up that logbook. And so anyway, at the very end of the logbook, my dad said it is finished, and and that was uh, uh, that that logbook I read on the uh, on the day he died. Oh wow. And, but that logbook was one of many uh, notebooks that he had full of uh, equations and full of plotting everything, no. right? No. Uh, I think basically uh, that notebook was NASA property. Right. And he, he just took it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you want a memento. Yeah, a memento. And so, uh, uh, so, so, and then I have a couple of other uh, NASA manuals that were just fascinating to me. Yeah, like there was the the flight manual that you showed, that massive book. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting on that is that that was just that was that was a high level summary uh, of of basically for 
press officers for for uh, for non technical non technical staff at NASA to be able to talk intelligently about the program. That 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 was the high level. That was that that was this just skimming the surface type mm-hmm. manual. But it was still fascinating. I was I was fascinated by the diagrams and the different stages of the uh, Apollo rocket. I'd be interested in at some point when I'm back in Florida at your place. I'd be interested in uh, taking some photos of those manuals and maybe maybe like and of his notebook there and maybe doing like a, maybe doing a YouTube video about it. Sure. And and I have a bit of an odd uh, motivation for this. Okay. Okay. You remember the movie Inception? I do. I, that that's a great sci-fi movie. Okay. And so you remember in the beginning of the movie Inception, his kid has a textbook about NASA and about the moon mission. And in the sci-fi missions, they in the movie, they tell, they say, uh, this book is out of date. And now in the future that they're showing, now we all understand that the moon missions were actually a fake thing, that it was just propaganda to win the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... This is something that a lot of people on the internet believe nowadays. And I'd be interested in getting in like in scanning that notebook or at least like taking some good photos of it so I can do my part to disprove this. Well, the thing is, social media lets anybody say anything. Yeah. It's... uh, uh, what was the the old saying? Uh, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. On the internet, nobody knows what is true. And so the fact that people come out with outrageous claims, to me, the important thing is the historical evidence and also the living eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. So so we have living eyewitnesses of that of that history. We have living, we, we actually have the astronauts who went to the moon uh, living. So, so you have on, on the left hand, the, the heavy weight of history, an eyewitness. And then on the right hand, you have the babbling of fools, you know, and if, and if people are going to listen to the babbling of fools, there's no convincing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I've, and I, I debate a bit with people on the internet. You know, I like to debate. So I've gotten into discussions with people and I've said, you know, if they were going to fake something like this, why would they go to all the trouble of having thousands and thousands of engineers working on projects? And why would they go to the moon multiple times if, if they were going to fake it? They would have just said, okay, they would have, you know, done a television production. And then they said, well, we've made it to the moon. We, we got the job done. You know, one of the proofs of history is it's called validation by a uh, hostile source. And in this case here, the, uh, the moon race was against the Russians. And believe me, the Russians acknowledged and believed that that we got to the moon, and so uh, 
So yeah, that's so, a good point. So 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 when your enemies surrender to the fact and acknowledge it, then the discussion is over. Mm-hmm. And, and and anybody that wants to discuss it further, they're just being argumentative. And sometimes with an argumentative person, nothing you say will ever convince them. So at that time, it's just good to go out and have a beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. So uh, I, it's you know interesting how our our heritage and how our genes they really do have a lot to do with 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 the way our own lives go. And so we can see this uh, proclivity in our family towards engineering and technical kinds of things. Because I think all of us now ended up doing, well, we all work with computers at this point. So we're all, we, we all have this in our family, we have this inclination towards, uh, towards yeah, wanting to deal with uh, technological uh, abstractions in our work and building things. Yeah, can I can I comment on that? Yeah, yeah. What's amazing to me is that as as you and Alex and lesser extent Woody and Estelle, as 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 you older children were growing up, you had no interest in that other other than other than playing uh, video games. What was one of those video games you liked? Oh boy, there was the one where you would control the B seventeen. Yeah, and uh, but uh, but when you were going through high school, and I was just I was just uh, I don't know how you, what you guys were going to do. And then what it's amazing to me is that uh, uh, you got involved so successfully in technology and and, and making a career out of it. Mm-hmm. And. So how did you get started working with computers, with programming? The, the way it started is uh, uh, I was in a uh, ministry in, uh, uh, in Colorado, in Durango, Colorado, and uh, they had uh, a tape library a cassette tape library. Cassette tapes were cutting edge technology back then. I think you could play them on that thing. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, that, that monstrosity over there. Uh, and so what they wanted to do was organize them. And one of the other people on staff, he had a portable computer and it was about the size of a suitcase, not a briefcase, a suitcase. And it did not eat... It, it it had a four inch by four inch monitor on it and you use floppy disks. And essentially what they had was the very beginning of a spreadsheet. What we know today like Excel spreadsheets uh, back then was the very beginning. It was rows and columns. And so what I did is I uh, uh, learned that program on this Osborne computer and I organized the tapes so that uh, nowadays what would be so simple is uh, an Excel spreadsheet sorting sorting list back then was just, that was a big thing. And so I got fascinated by it. 
And then uh, after our missionary service uh, was done, uh, I went back to school. And where did you do the missionary service? Uh, it was in uh, Durango, Colorado, as I said earlier. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, so I went back to school for programming and uh, uh, I learned uh, basic, I learned COBOL. Uh, all of those are very simplistic, n- no longer used uh, languages. I also learned some assembler. But uh, that was the uh, beginning of me being able to have a career in technology that I have. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out quite well. Okay, let's ask a little bit different kind of question. When was a time in your life that you thought you were going to die? When I was in the Navy, I was on an aircraft carrier, the USS Midway. And the Midway during this time period was off the coast of Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And I was a U.S. Navy sailor. And uh, I was also a photographer for the Navy. And so one day I said to myself, I want to take a picture of the bow of the ship as it plows through the ocean water. And the thing is, the uh, uh, the the bow of an aircraft carrier, even at the very pointy pointy, is is still about 40 feet wide. And so it just blunders and plows through the ocean. And I wanted to get a picture of that. And so uh, the very front of the ship, it's called the forecastle. Uh, that's where they they have the chain lockers and uh, and at the and at the uh, uh, front of the forecastle were portholes uh, that round, you know, uh, two foot wide portholes, uh, you know, where you could look at the horizon. And so I went up to the porthole and as a Navy photographer, I had uh, camera gear. And so what I wanted to do was I was about 90 feet above the water while we were at sea off the coast of Vietnam going about 30 knots, and uh, uh, I wanted to point the camera down, and I wanted to take a picture of the bow as it thundered and blundered through the water. Uh, And so I first uh, leaned a little bit out the window, the porthole, and I looked down, and so the, the, the front of the ship went down about 15 feet before it began to curve in inward. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, first saw, oh, yeah, I looked straight down and I could not see the bow. And I said, well, I'll lean out just a little bit further. You needed some perspective. Yeah, I needed to lean out a little bit further. So I leaned out a little bit further and then I could just see the beginning of the bow 90 feet down uh, below me. And I said, oh, that's not good enough. And, and so I then leaned out further to my belt buckle. So my belt buckle was resting on the edge of the porthole and the whole rest of the upper part of my body was, you know, 90 feet above water. And, and I took my camera and I extended my hands as far as they could go and I pointed the camera downwards and I began taking pictures. And as I was leaning out that porthole, you know, uh, that's when I slipped. And I, I started falling forward. And, and, I, and I realized in an instant that if I fell forward 
and fell into the ocean, the ship would just run me over and then the propellers would turn me into, into fish bait. Uh, <laughs> you would have been a good meal for fish. Yeah. And, uh, and so at the last second, I just spread my legs wide, wide open to the left and to the right. And so basically, uh, I prevented myself from uh, uh, falling out the porthole and I got back in and I was pretty shaken up. And, uh, but I never told anybody in the Navy about that because uh, if you accidentally kill yourself in the Navy, uh, you know, they can uh, uh, court-martial you? Yeah, court-martial. They, they can do all kinds of bad things. Post, posthumous? Yeah, posthumous bad things. <laughs> and so, so that was my, uh, my one little adventure story from the Navy. And so this is during the Vietnam War. Yeah. Did you have strong political views on the politics of the time? Absolutely. What was happening? Yeah, I was totally against the Vietnam War. But you had limited stark options. You could, uh, if you, uh, and I was, I was drafted. I was one of the last people in the U.S. that was drafted, uh, is that you could refuse to serve and they put you in jail, or you could refuse to serve, and they'd uh, and and a lot of people did this. They'd go up to Canada, and uh, uh, and so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to go in the Navy, and I have no regrets. Yeah, I, I got, <laughs> it wasn't a very libertarian time. Uh, I got the GI Bill afterwards, and I was able to go to school, and uh, uh, and that made a lot of things possible in my life. So, and I and I remember when uh, when when you kids were growing up, I was I was encouraging each of you to go into the military, uh, and but that was that was a choice for for you guys to make, and you. you you, you made other good choices with your life. Mm -hmm. What was the first thing you thought when you saw me for the first time? When you were born? Yeah. What, what, were, your thought, what were your thoughts? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you had some positive thoughts, but what were, there's probably also some anxiety. No, I remember when you were born, uh, and please don't be offended by this, we thought you were the cutest little girl we ever saw. And the reason is, is that uh, your gender wasn't, you know, just seeing your face. You, you, you had, you had, you had a cute face, and you had a lot of thick black hair, even when you were born. And uh, uh, and and so I was, I was just awestruck, awestruck uh, by the wonder of a human life. Mm hmm. Okay. Oh boy. Something I'm I'm curious about. Do you recall how much did it cost to have a baby back then? Uh, we had some health insurance, and I think uh, I think we still paid like about twelve hundred dollars. So obviously doesn't compare at all about the outrageous medical costs that exist in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, times times have changed quite a bit. Yeah. That's why I intend to have my babies here yes. in, in Bulgaria. 
it's uh, much, 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 much more affordable. I think I'd have to yes. sell, a, yep. sell a kidney or something in the USA to do it. And uh, we moved around a bit. We lived there in Durango. And I honestly have no memories of our time in Durango. I think I have a vague memory of our time in San Diego. But I think I, I recall a, a first floor apartment. Mm-hmm. But really not much else other than that. And my first distinctive memory is taking the flight here. Take, not here. Taking the flight to Colorado. Back to Denver. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. When, we, when I got a job back in Colorado and we, and the, and we all moved back uh, to uh, Denver. Now, I, Actually, we lived in Littleton, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember Littleton. What I do remember is what I talked with uh, mom about in the podcast that I did with her, which was that we lived in a really creepy house. No, I don't recall that. Okay, we lived in a house that we thought was demon-possessed. You know what? I'll have to... I don't. I don't know anything about that. Okay, that's <laughs> what. What I can tell you about that house is that you and Alex, when I would come home from work at night, I would park in the driveway, and there was this big poplar tree of some kind uh, right next to it, and I'd get out of the car, and you and Alex would look down, and you'd say, "Dad, we're up at death level," and so I'd look, and you'd be like about. 25, 30 feet up this tree, <laughs> hanging on. And I remember I would have... Uh, that was uh, a great tree. Yeah, I would, I would, I would have the, my heart in my mouth. And I'd say, hi, boys. Why don't you climb on down and give me a hug? Because otherwise I was afraid that you were going to drop like a ripe melon and poof, hit the ground. Yeah, but we were uh, very dexterous little, little tree climbers. I think we managed to... You managed to survive your youth. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. And then I would say, uh, okay, let me think of some uh, memories that I have. Uh, the I have real limited memories of, uh, of uh, uh, my grandfather. I seem to have a really vague memory of him as uh, young as a really young child when we visited there. Grand- grandfather on your... On whose no, side? no, 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 Nails. Oh, Nails, okay. Uh, I have a real vague memory of him. I think he might have read a book to me or something like that. And and then I distinctly remember visiting the Rocket Gardens there in Florida. That yeah. was a fantastic, uh, inspirational memory, I would and say. And they're still there. Uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully... Hopefully I'll be able to visit them again sure. one day at some point in the future. And then you kind of went through, you went through a bit of a midlife crisis when the technology industry went kind of flip-flop. I think that was maybe in the early 2000s. Well, I, it wasn't a uh, midlife crisis. What happened is after 9-11, uh, we had a big economic downturn. And uh, 
Uh, I was uh, I was laid off from my job, uh, and part of it is that uh, I was I was working as an Oracle database administrator uh, for this company, and it was a small startup company, and they were trying to sell themselves like most startups do. And they realized that they'd improve their bottom line if they didn't have to pay me my salary. Adios. <laughs> and so out I was. And then uh, uh, I went to uh, uh, went unemployment and was looking for work every day. Uh, but, but the whole technology industry in Denver was just flat. Everybody was laying off people uh, as an economic consequence of the 9-11 bombing. It, you know, it, we think of the historical and the human consequence, but it also had an economic consequence. Oh, yeah. And uh, I could not find work. Uh, and then federal unemployment ended and then more limited state unemployment. And I was, uh, that's when I went to work for Walmart, where I worked nights from 10 p.m. till uh, 7 a.m. Uh, packing meat on the shelves. And, uh, and then after that, uh, I, I went to work, got interviewed with Northrop Grumman, which is a, uh, uh, a defense industry company. And then I went back to work with them doing my, uh, you know, my, my previous occupation. Yeah, and that was a, uh, you know, I, I saw with you that you you weren't above Walmart when it come to when it when it came to work, you know. No, no, I I, I I I know more about. Uh, uh, I think you were Walmart, Walmart for made, like six six months. Uh, close to that, yeah, and. Uh, and then also in earlier years when we moved uh, back to San Diego, prior to me going back to business school, uh, we were on uh, welfare and, uh, and I worked at JCPenney selling men's underwear. And I knew more about men's underwear than most men know. <laughs> and uh, then we, and then, you know, your career got back on track and we had, I think we, I think we had, a, in retrospect, you know, at the time when you're an angsty teenager, it always seems like you're, you know, suffering through uh, a really tough uh, existence. But in retrospect, I think I had a pretty good childhood. We would do, uh, we would do a lot of fun things. We had a lot of hobbies. I distinctly remember we would do uh, camping. We would do a lot of camping. We had that that great big tent. Remember, we had that yep. three three room tent. It was a Coleman. Uh, it was a canvas Coleman tent that weighed about thirty pounds. Yeah, that was a solid tent. Yes, yes, it was industrial strength. And we'd go out to. Like we'd go out to what was it called, the Colorado National Monument. Yep, we we went to the. Uh, uh, I took you guys camping at the Cherry Creek uh, State Park, which was only fifteen minutes away from the house. So there we were, at the park. We had this big tent 
all set up. We had, we're, we're going to do our roughing it, uh, uh, dinner out on the campfire. And then we realized we were missing one utensil. So I said, ah, uh, hold on guys. So at 15 minutes, I, I, I drove to the house, picked it up, came back and we continued our roughing, uh, dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I was diagnosed with ADHD at a pretty young age. I think it was maybe when I was in first, second grade, something, something like that. And I think probably my uh, school performance was always something that, that uh, you guys were probably a bit frustrated with. Is that a question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, each of the children had their own experiences going through school. Um, and, and I remember we uh, uh, homeschooled you, I think, for the first two years. And then uh, uh, you went back to then you then you reentered the public school. And uh, uh, you 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 got through it. I mean, um, I think there was there was always quite a bit of uncertainty. In whose mind? Oh, I've, I I think well, definitely in mine. Uh, with what the heck I was going to do with my life because I was just not very good at school. Uh you, you know, school, like going through high school, uh, I don't think it's, I, I don't think, I don't think it served you well. Uh, and I think since then you've uh, proved yourself to be a success in your, in what you want to do with your life. So uh, high school is, high school is not the, uh, is, is not, is not the mark I would judge myself against. Mm -hmm. Whenever I talk to young people, I tell them that your years in, in high school, your years in public education, they're probably going to be the worst part of your life. Could be. Because the, the rest of your life, your options your options just open up so much and the public education system, at least there in the United States, it's, it's really just this uh, factory to crush the souls of young people. It's you really know, I, dis bad. I disagree with that. Okay. Uh, you went to the Cherry Creek school district and it, it was one of the best school districts in, in Colorado. And, uh, uh, and you know what the thing is? There's there's people that excel in that environment, and then there's other people that don't. Uh, but it was it was still a it was still a uh, and continues to be an excellent uh, school system there. So well, well, I guess I guess I got to learn to scuba dive. You did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I when I think back on school, God, it's hard to remember anything I learned. There was, I think the one useful thing I learned in school is I started learning Spanish. And that served you well when you went to uh, South America. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really did. And then the, the scuba diving was fun. Yes. I now know uh, what a BCD is. 
and have a, a modicum of understanding of uh, uh, appropriate uh, nitrogen blood saturation levels. Yes. Yes. What, so what did you What did you think when I left the United States and I started traveling around the world? You know, you were always what's What's the saying? Uh, following a different drummer. You know, what is it? The uh, you, you were you you accepted it. Oh, uh, <laughs> there wasn't yeah. too much judgment. <laughs> no, I, I accepted it, and uh, uh, and the thing is, you were working on internet projects, you were selling products to customers, uh, you were supporting yourself overseas, and you could do it via the internet, and it was not restricted to a physical uh, location. And so, uh, uh, so I'm, you know, and, and you had experiences there that that you could never reproduce anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still think it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made to go and be a digital nomad because the the cost of living is just so much lower in a lot of countries that. And in my case, I didn't go to college to learn to do web development or learn to do all the things I do on the Internet now. And I had to teach myself uh, those things. I had to take courses online. I had to watch a bunch of YouTube videos. I had to find tutorials of all these different things. And there was a learning curve to that. And there was a learning curve to being a freelancer and a contractor and being a smaller entrepreneur. And it because of that lower cost of living and being able to provide services to people in the United States in the first world, it uh, allowed me to to uh, achieve a have a career that's that's pretty great now. Where I do the you know I focus on something that I'm really really passionate about, which is the biohacking stuff, the health stuff the nootropic stuff that I've uh, been, that I've been into for, it's been about eight years now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and I, yeah, I, people would tell me, uh, in fact, Gergana has told me this, that she said, wow, your parents, they must have been a little bit freaked out about you hanging out there in uh, Colombia or Nicaragua or Ukraine and spending uh, years and years away from away from home, and I uh, I, I apologize that I didn't come home more well, often. You don't have to apologize to me. You know when when I was in the Navy, uh, when I left home uh, around twenty one, I went into the U.S. Navy and uh, went around the world and uh, came back and and. To the U.S., I, I chose to stay in uh, San Diego as opposed to returning back. So, so you don't have you don't have anybody to apologize to for your life. Well, thanks. I think that makes for a good podcast. And uh, yeah, you were a bit surprised. Well, we'll just mention this right here. You wrote a book. There's a very rather professional-looking photo of you on the back of. The <laughs> On the back, on the back of the book here. Yeah, 
you wrote it, this time travel science fiction novel. And, and I read it at the time. Yeah. Uh, earlier when I referred to uh, when I was laid off after 9-11, during those uh, months of uh, uh, unemployment, uh, each day uh, I would spend one dedicated hour looking and scouring work uh, and trying to interview and write things. But essentially, uh, after one hour, uh, you've, uh, I discovered everything that was available for that day and I responded to it. And so the the other uh, seven hours, uh, what I would do is I I just uh, I just started writing, and I actually wrote the book with the uh, uh, with the ending in mind. The ending of the book uh, uh, was the first thing I thought of, and then, and then I essentially worked backwards, and, and I would say, well, if this happened, how would that happen? And then I'd figure it out. And they go, well, what would happen before that? And then what would happen before that? So, uh, so, so it was a uh, it was it was a great exercise, and I'm I'm glad I wrote it. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you did write it. Do you have any other uh, books or creative projects that you foresee in the future? Uh, I'm not writing any more books, uh, and. Uh, um, you made so much money off of this one. Oh. <laughs> you know, actually, I did not make one, <laughs> one, one red thin dime off of it. So it was truly a labor of love because it was not a labor of profit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, it, at some point you're going to be retiring. So I hope that you will, you know, think about Got to find something to do to kill time, and you don't just want to be uh, watching watching sports. Yeah. I don't even think you watch sports much. Uh, I, you know what? I keep up with the Broncos, and now I'm uh, uh, keeping up with the Tampa uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Aha! So. Well, our little dog is yipping, and I think that's a good sign to bring this to its conclusion. All right. So thanks, Dad. I look forward to a continued conversation with you. Very good. <laughs>